This is Live from Ukraine, a conversation with Ukrainian voices taped live on Twitter Spaces. To join future audiences, follow me at Benjamin Wittes. From Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, this is Live from Ukraine, a highly eccentric podcast recorded before a live audience on Twitter Spaces, normally featuring Ukrainian voices on the current conflict. Uh, This is, however, the first time we are uh, featuring a non-Ukrainian voice, uh, because the voice in question is uh, one that I think has become exceptionally valuable in understanding uh, the Ukraine-Russia conflict, even though I understand, I want to admit probably no more than 30% of the information that he conveys. Uh, We are joined today by Rob Lee. Uh, Rob, I don't know quite how to describe you. You're a a Marine veteran, a PhD candidate in London, and the author of the world's, as far as I know, longest tweet thread of uh, videos of munitions. Yeah, I think that, that probably sums it up. <laughs> so why don't why don't you introduce yourself a little bit uh, and give us a, a a sense of who you are, and then I want to talk to you about this tweet thread and this uh, incredible body of work that you've put together. Sure. So uh, thanks for having me on first, and you know, honored to be the the first non-Ukrainian to be on this. Um, obviously, it's always good to to hear from Ukrainian voices on this on this war because you know they they feel it more than than I do. They they know more much more about. About, the, about you know much of this than I do as well, so it, it's good to get their voices. Um, so for my background, um, I was a Marine infantry officer. Uh, I did three deployments, and basically before before this, I, I didn't have much of a kind of Russia focus uh, growing up or, or any kind of family there. But um, my last deployment was to Georgia, where I trained um, the 31st Light Infantry Georgian Light Infantry Battalion before they deployed it to Afghanistan. And basically, it, it was a it was a Marine Corps mission that had been going on for several years, and I, I went I went there on like two days notice. It was literally a kind of uh, flip a coin type thing. I, I didn't have to do it. Decided, you know what? I didn't know much about the area, but you know, at that phase of my life, I said, I'm, I'm not going to say no to opportunities. Um, and it kind of, you know, my trajectory of everything I've done since then. And so um, as I trained that, that battalion, um, I got out of the Marine Corps, did a master's at Columbia, didn't have a regional focus, decided to choose Russia. This is before um, the 2014 war in Ukraine kicked off. Uh, I, at the time I thought, Kind of Russia and the region was was undervalued, understudied by uh, by a lot of people. And then um, after after I graduated from a master's, I spent a year in Russia on a fellowship. I worked at a, a you know quasi defense think tank, um, the defense research there, an independent think tank. And then since then, I've been doing a, a PhD at King's College London, the War Studies Department, um, focused on Russian defense policy. I'm, I'm mostly focused on arms exports, but um, you know, Russian military things have been so, you know, it kind of important the last four, three, three or five years uh, long. That basically, I've, I've kind of just focused on whatever Russia's doing militarily. And a lot of it, um, you know, I think one of the weaknesses is that a lot of it is just tracking things. And so, you know, what I do on Twitter mostly is just I, I, I track the Russian military, I track um, arms exports, procurement details, all these kind of things. Because there isn't really a good, you know, single uh, you know, database for a lot of this stuff. The Russian MOD will post some information one day, right? And they won't record it. And then you get all this kind of different information. So it's really important that every day kind of Russian defense sources um, on what's happening on, on kind of different data points. And so for, for this war, um, you know, I, I followed what, you know, Russia's uh, campaign in Syria. I followed a few other ones. Um, and I also followed the Nagorno-Karabakh war quite closely. 
where I also have a very, very long throw in that war. And all of that kind of, you know, prepared me for, for this war to kind of, you know, track it and to kind of realize what things I need to kind of look at, you know, what, what are the good sources and things of that nature. Um, and yeah, and, and so basically, you know, for this war, um, one of the really important things to do is it's obviously kind of gone for quite a long time, but to track information every day of what's happening, um, you know, what Russia is doing. And a lot of this is, is later on that there's kind of a record I can go back to and say, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost it's, it's kind of difficult to remember things happening in February. Honestly, it's so long ago. But, you know, going back, tracking what Russia was doing when, you know, what was going on in the war at those times. Um, all those things are really important, especially important, you know, when we you know, look at this kind of war afterwards and try to say, OK, this is what happened. This is why things happened and try to explain exactly what, what occurred and, and why it occurred. So the tweet thread, if you look at any uh, uh, components of it, and there are something like thirty five hundred of them now, um, looks like a uh, fairly indiscriminate collection of things blowing up with your annotations. Uh, having followed it for a while, it's clearly a lot more than that. Uh, you're, you're tracking certain things on it. Uh, so walk us through uh, the tweet thread for the uninitiated. What is it, uh, what is it 3,600 3, whatever examples of or uh, tracks of? Sure. So you know, first off, I, I haven't organized everything that well, and so in some, some in some cases, the the system makes sense to me. So when I look, try and look back and, and find certain tweets, it probably will not make sense to other people. And and you know, every day when, when someone always asks me every day on Twitter, what is the number at the end of my thread? And I you know I, I try not to, to answer because it's you know I hope it's obvious, but maybe not. Um, so I've got one large thread that covers a variety of things of the war. I have one that's just on Russian losses. Um, I have one that's on you know, loitering munitions, um, other kind of specific pieces of equipment um, or specific units being used um, or, you know, specific events. So like the, the initial aerosol operation at, in Holstomol, um, I've got you know, separate threads on that as well. Um, it's quite an important uh, modern warfare kind of case study on exactly what happened and, and how that happens. So I, I have a number of them threads. There's one big one. Anything that doesn't fit in a small thread goes in the big one. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not that well organized. It, but it is something I can go back to, you know, whenever a year from now, two years from now, and I can just scroll through it and kind of find things that made sense at the time. Um, and it's easier to do that. You know, th there's a wealth of, of Telegram channels and other other social media accounts that follow the war that, that, that you know, also accumulate these videos. But it's very hard to go through that um, afterwards, after war is over, because there's, there's so much data. And so it's easier for me to just put it on Twitter. And also, I, I use the advanced search function on Twitter a lot, too. So there's any kind of, you know, video or specific kind of tactic or, or equipment or something, something along those lines, anything unique that I think I've seen before, I can go back and look at it. And, and a big part of this is that, um, you know, when you follow war from open sources, there's a lot you're not seeing. So there's clearly a lot of things that, you know, we don't know about the war. And it's always important to keep that in mind. Um, but a lot of times, you know, you might see a video of something. It may not be that important, but then see similar videos showing indicating the same thing over time. And it, it leads you, you know, to see, okay, we're seeing a trend here. And that may, that might matter you know, as, as, as form of some, some kind of new TTP that Russia is doing or, or something else. And it's not always clear the first time you see something, whether it's going to be important or it's going to keep happening, so on. So, um, yeah, anyway, the, the threat is not nearly as, um, I guess, well-organized as, as I, I'd hoped it would be or it should be, but it's all the information there. And, you know, I guess the, the one thing I, I, I will say is that 
a lot of the threads are there more for me than anyone else. So I'm happy for people to look at, look through and, and kind of see information that's collected. But a lot of times, you know, I, I specifically track things that are interesting to me. And, and my, you know, my focus is really looking at the Russian military and trying to say, okay, how did they fight this war? What were their strengths? What were their limitations? Um, you know, what, what, what are the kind of unique details, right? Maybe specific units, you know, how did the naval infantry perform or VDV or what was the structure or equipment issues? Those are things that are really, you know, important to me. And so I, I you know, I focus more on Russian losses than I do on Ukrainian losses because they're more, you know, from Russian tanks, for example, being damaged than I do from Ukrainian ones. And one of the things I'm looking at right now is, is you know, trying to determine, okay, we've seen a lot of Russian tanks being destroyed, but what, you know, what percentage of anti-tank guided missile strikes on tanks are destroying them? What percentage is, is kind of damaging them or, or so on? That's really important information. And it's important information kind of for, for um, you know, the U.S. side of, of you know, got my friends that are still in the service. Um, and it's also important just analyzing Russia. And so that's, a lot of things I focus and I track, it's mostly about the Russian military. And, and so, you know, Ukraine is obviously a really key role here. I'm not as familiar with the Ukrainian military. Um, I'm, not as, I'm not as focused on kind of recording Ukrainian military losses. Um, but, you know, the Russian side, that's really what I, I try to, to try to do on Twitter. So over the course of five months of this conflict, it seems to me that the conventional wisdom in the West has gone through at least three, maybe four distinct phases with respect to the Russian military. The first was the ex- expectation that they would simply roll in and there was nothing the Ukrainian military would or could do to stop them. And it was a three-day operation to get to Kiev. The second was, oh my God, they're completely incompetent. We've completely overrated these people for uh, uh, a long time. And they're getting their asses kicked um, uh, in, in very embarrassing fashions. The third is, okay, they're falling back to uh, a, a face-saving uh, capture of territory in Donbass. And then the fourth is kind of, wow, they're kind of good at this grinding away uh, uh, attrition fight uh, uh stuff, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they're not quite as incompetent as we thought in phase two. And so I guess I'm, I'm interested for your analysis, synthetic analysis of the, these four periods, um, you know, in, in what senses have they performed, uh, uh, well and badly and incompetently, uh, leaving all moral calculations aside, I mean, they've obviously been engaged in a systemic campaign of war crimes, but I'm thinking right now more from the point of view of effectiveness. How should we piece together these these different phases in which our kind of conventional understanding has vacillated between overestimating and underestimating them? Sure. Um, so I think one of the things that, to emphasize so, so first off, you know, watching wars, they're always difficult to predict, right? Because there's so many factors that go in on both sides that contribute to how a country fights, how they can, can, can you know, withstand things, willpower. It's, you know, it's very difficult to kind of calculate those things in any kind of real tangible way. Um, and so, you know, <clears throat> one of the, I, I have had concerns that back in March and April that we were getting a, a, you know, a huge wave of articles saying, you know, the Russian military is a paper target. We've gotten everything wrong. You know, the U.S. intelligence community has been completely wrong about assessing this. And, and I thought a lot of it was hyperbolic. And, and I, think, I think some of those things written very early, I don't think have, 
have aged very well. And, and I should say that, you know, I, I wrote an article in January about, about what I thought Russia would do, and it didn't happen either. So, right. So, that, so my, my piece didn't, you know, it, it, I think the foreign policy analysis of my piece was right. Um, and obviously, I, I thought Russia was going to go to war. The way Russia went to war was very different than what I expected. And, and one of the things that, to emphasize when we kind of conceive of this conflict and we, and we conceive of the different kind of phases is that the, the first phase was very bizarre to me and to other kind of Russian defense analysts because it, it, it didn't go the way we thought the Russian military would fight. Um, because, you know, the Russian military, it, it's an open question about their strengths and weaknesses. And, and there are a lot of weaknesses they, they demonstrated that were worse than I expected. Um, so that's, that's certainly, that's certainly true, as, that's true in, certain, in terms of some equipment. In terms of some training, some other issues, leadership issues, that, that is a problem. But the, the other thing is that the strategy Russia chose was very bad. And if Russia had chosen a more competent strategy in this war, it could have gone very differently and it could have been much worse for Ukraine. And, and fortunately, that, that Russia made that mistake. And basically, my view, you know. The first... and, and hang on, walk us through that. Sure. What, I mean, there have been a lot of criticisms uh, uh, of the Russian plan. Uh, but what is behind your your uh, claim that they had, you know, planned this entirely uh, bizarrely and incompetently? What's the what's the substance of that criticism? So, you know, when, we, when I was trying to figure out what Russia would do this war, you know, there, there are a few different things you can look at. You can look at training exercises. You can look at Russian doctrine. You can look at um, you know, papers that Russian officers write about warfare and, and, and other things they emphasize. Um, you look at previous conflicts they fought in. You can look at also just the, their, their strengths and weaknesses, right? So, you know, as an example, Russian military is a big, it, it focuses a lot on artillery, focuses a lot on armor. It's a big emphasis compared to, to you know, other militaries. Strength of theirs, it also is a weakness in some ways, but it's a strength. And so you, you assume that when you look at the Russian military, you look at their strengths and weaknesses, that Russia would adopt a strategy that's in line with those strengths and weaknesses. And they didn't do that. Right. And so that, that was, you know, my, my view is that what Russia would do would be something looking like a compellence campaign. And so I thought the the best template of what Russia would apply in, in 2022 was the 2008 war with Georgia, where it was, um, you know, and, and, and Russia demonstrated a lot of weaknesses in that war. They ultimately were successful. Um, and, and basically it was use, use of force. But they, but Russia had you know so limited objectives. Right. They didn't try to go to the Tbilisi. They didn't um, try to occupy that much of Georgia than they, than they you know able to. They had more realistic, limited political objectives that they could achieve through military force, and they kept it short for a reason. Um, you know, the Russian military had issues going, you know, past the week anyway. And so I thought that, that basically we would see a more aggressive, ambitious version of that war. And my view is that, you know, when you look at Ukraine, it, it, was, it was certainly clear that Ukraine's military is much, much more capable than it was in 2014. Ukraine in general, you know, is a, um, you know, Ukraine's been at war for eight years. So there's no reason to think Ukraine would simply fold if Russia invaded you had a large number of combat veterans every year. Ukrainians sign up for the military. They go to fight. Right. It's it's you know, it's, it's very clear they have this this identity. They're a country at war and they're not giving in for a reason. And so there's no reason to think they would simply give up when, if Russia can escalate it. Right. And Russia's plan assumed that it, it was it was a strategy that assumed if they moved fast enough um, that basically Ukraine, you know, if, if they achieve no surprise, Ukraine would not resist. And, and a lot of the way they fought um, uh, was, was, was underpinned by that kind of unrealistic assumption. And so when, when I look at, you know, the way Russian military operates, trains, so on, um, my view is that the initial phase was going to focus on the Russian military using as much of its artillery, multi-launch rocket systems, all these missiles, Iskander M, all cruise missiles, as a huge advantage over the Ukrainian military and those capabilities in terms of medium, long-range fires. 
And so I thought the you know, initial campaign would involve the Russian military maximally using all of these, uh, these missiles, these fires to target Ukraine's best kind of ground forces. And I thought the offensive would focus on trying to destroy or capture those kind of Ukrainian units or to encircle them, right? So this, the JFO area on the Donbass where a lot of Ukraine's best units were, I thought that would, that would make sense. I also, you know, based on where Russian forces were, were, were based before the war, I also thought Kyiv would be a, be, be a focus as well. But they, instead of that, right, we saw this invasion where they had way too many axes in advance. And so you saw, you know, not just stopping in Dnieper, but going towards Mykolaiv, trying to go to Odessa, going to Kyiv, Chernihiv, Sumy, Kharkiv, all these areas. And, and by doing that, it exacerbated all the Russian weaknesses. Right? So logistics has been, been a, a common theme of, of a problem in the Russian military. The issue is that the plan they developed exacerbated those logistics problems um, substantially. So the Russian, you know, the strategy basically had two uh, priorities. And it was, it was speed and it was secrecy. And that makes sense in a different type of operation. It doesn't make sense in a war like this where you have to use your entire military, conventional military, um, and you expect them to operate effectively. Because ultimately, if you want to achieve surprise, it's great. But ultimately, the surprise goes both ways, and Russian soldiers were just as surprised with the war, if not more so than Ukrainian soldiers were, right? And that's not exactly what you want to achieve. And so the actual template that Russia applied was something more like um, the 1968 Soviet intervention in Czechoslovakia or the, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 79. Um, and, and you can see that from a, a variety of ways, right? It's, it's similar in a, a, a number of respects. And the way it was kind of conceived also makes sense that way. And my view is basically that um, you know, the Russian military... They fight in a combined arms way. They, 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 they see the importance of that. They see the importance of using um, of fires to support maneuver, of UAVs, of this thing, this thing called reconnaissance fire and, and, and strike complex, which is basically just an integrated kind of kill chain to, to use UAVs, people on the ground to find targets, to transmit that to command and control, and then to strike it with, with munitions, precision guided munitions. And we didn't see any of that at the beginning of the war. There was none of that. And instead, we saw units were, they were basically just driving as fast as possible to, to cities or to other kind of objectives. And, we, and they weren't operating as often as cohesive units, right? So it wasn't even battalion tactical groups. It was, we're seeing a company of tanks driving right to some target without electronic warfare, without infantry, without, you know, artillery support, or air defense, all the kind of things. And, and it's not how the Russian military fights, right? It's completely against their doctrine. Because we've seen them, how they fought in other conflicts. And so basically, you know, the first three weeks of this war, the Russian military performed in a completely different manner than we expected. Um, based on- and, and before you go on, what do you attribute that to? Is that the... The Putin grandiosity, should we attribute that to Russia's uh, tendency to fail to take Ukraine seriously as a, as a state, as a polity, as a people, as a nation, uh, that they just thought they could walk over it? What's the, I, I mean, what explains the Russian uh, complete failure to apprehend the magnitude of the project they were undertaking such that they would do that to the exclusion of of their own doctrine across a half a dozen points. So my explanation is that this this operation was conceived of and primarily planned by very small select people in the Kremlin. It was Putin. It was the FSB. It was maybe a few other really senior people like Patrushev or or possibly Shoigu. I don't think the Russian military um, played a very key role in how this operation was conceived. And so I, I, I think that you know, there's kind of, I guess, two ways to look at it. Either one, they played some role in the conception of the operation, but didn't have an ability to refine the plan or vice versa. But basically, I think the, the, the plan was developed by Putin and the FSB. It's a plan that makes sense to, you know, FSB or KGB officers, because, again, this is similar to what Soviet Union did in, in 68 and, and 79. Um, but this would not make sense to a military officer. 
and we could talk about you know, all the issues with with uh, you know mistakes the Russian military has made, and, and you know how, you know how, how that reflects on Russian military officers. But ultimately, Russian military officers they they you know they respect combined arms. They, they realize the importance of principles of war, like mass, other things that you know the plan deviated from. And so my explanation basically is that the Russian military either played a, a small role in the, in the, the development of this plan. Or was basically given a plan by Putin by the FSB and basically said you're going to execute this and you don't have much ability to refine the plan. And I think the the assumptions was coming from the FSB, right? Assumptions about um, you know the amount of resistance you see from Ukraine, the response you see, all those kind of things. And, and again, you know, one of the it's going to be it's going to be a big you know topic of focus for you know future years about how this plan came about. Was it because Putin was so you know isolated the last few years like with COVID? You know, was this the FSB? Was it was the FSB actually this wrong, or did it become basically Putin wanted you know confirmation bias, and so if the FSB brought him information that he didn't like, he got mad, and so they decided to just only give him you know information that kind of some biases. Maybe that's it too. Um, I think there are a few things, but basically, I don't think Russian military officers played a key role. And another thing that's notable is that in in, in Putin's um, close circle, there are a lot of people from from power agencies, like security services, but most of them were KGB officers, most of them intelligence officers. Not many of them have military experience. Um, and so they don't realize, you know, example, we talk about the secrecy aspect, the compartmentalization. <clears throat> you know, you can do that with, with small special operations, right? You can do that for a, like the bin Laden raid or things of that nature. We have a very small unit who's it's well- It's very hard to invade a country with- Exactly. But when, when you talk about a, a vision of a large country and you, and you talk about your entire military, I mean, they, they you know, they, they put some like 80% of their permanent readiness battalion tablet groups in the beginning. Um, those units have to get warning. They can't operate effectively. Tank units, right? They, they require a lot of maintenance. They require a lot of logistic support. And, and, and what we're finding out from you know, a variety of sources is basically that most soldiers found out the day of they're going to war. Right? So they heard, they heard Putin announce it or from something else, and that's how they found out. But even commanders, or even like battalion-level commanders, when they actually get details of operation, you know, a couple of days prior, probably not more than a week prior, and it's simply not enough to do all the coordination, right? So the ground people talking to pilots, Right, logisticians planning out food, fuel, all those kind of things. And so, you know, again, what we, we saw in the beginning of this war, um, and, and I'm writing a couple papers about this, but one of them was, you know, there's some people saying a tank is obsolete, right? And it was based on the Russian tank war. When you look at a lot of the Russian tank losses, though, something like 40% of them were tanks that were, they were abandoned and captured by Ukraine. And that doesn't tell you that tanks are obsolete. It tells you they weren't employed correctly. And, and, and in a lot of cases, some of these units, they, they, you know, they were not, they did not have the fuel ready. They did not have the maintenance uh, ready. And, you know, when we look at, you know, I, I talked to my friends in the Marine Corps about this. If, if, if we had tried to do the invasion of Iraq and the, sol- the guys that were there didn't know until a day or two prior, um, the war would not have gone well, right? You have to do a lot of coordination. It takes time. And so instead, they, they um, prioritized secrecy over everything else. And it really had a significant negative effect on the Russian military's capability to fight this war. And we saw it in the beginning. And, and so, again, a lot of the, 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 the mistakes and failures we saw was the Russian military focused on speed and secrecy above all else. And by focusing on those two things, it meant you couldn't do combined arms very well. You couldn't coordinate things very well. You couldn't plan out logistics, other things of that nature very well because it kept things so compartmentalized and basically, you know, very negative effect on the Russian military. And so we, we, we talk about the different kind of phases of the Russian military and this war and our analysis of it. Um, certainly in the beginning, there were some key failures the Russian military demonstrated that were worse than I expected, right? So the communications, there are clearly some issues there. I thought electronic warfare would be more effective. You know, the Russian Air Force did not perform well either. Um, and there are significant issues of personnel. They didn't have enough infantry, and, and the battalions that deployed were smaller than expected. So all those things were, you know, really key weaknesses. But we were all seeing them perform a terrible strategy that made no sense. And at a political level, they set the military for failure. And so 
you know, one, one of my concerns early on when people were trying to draw lessons from, you know, in March about the Russian military or modern warfare was that we didn't have a good explanation of everything. And, and you, you know, it was more important to kind of wait. And what we're seeing right now in the Donbass is we're seeing the Russian military fight closer to their doctrine. Right? So we're seeing more competent use of artillery to support maneuver, better use of UAVs to, to work with artillery, better integration of, of these kind of concepts. Um, they're dismounting more. They're not, you know, they're not fighting from vehicles as much. They're, they're, they, they see the usefulness of, of dismount infantry. So we're seeing um, improvements. I wouldn't necessarily call them adaptations because more that they're fighting the way they're supposed to fight and the, the initial phase is the way they were not supposed to fight. The problem, though, is that they, they sustained so heavy casualties in the first month of this war and so they lost so much equipment that the units being used right now, you know, a lot of them are not cohesive units around from before the war. They're amalgamated. They're, you know, they had to add on volunteers, reservists. And so, you know, because of those losses, the Russian military, they can have success. They, 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 can, they, can, um, they, can, they can achieve it, but only on a kind of localized tactical level. And they can't conduct a really large-scale big breakthrough because they just don't have the capabilities anymore because of those initial losses. So one thing that has seems to be a constant, whether in the fish-out-of-water period of the first uh, uh, month of the war or this latter period is works. And I'm interested in where this fits into their doctrine. Um, you know, I, I have, notwithstanding having watched the Syria conflict, I am surprised at the degree and unashamedness of the, uh, the systemic violations of the law of armed conflict here. And I'm, I'm curious whether whether from the point of view of somebody who watches the Russian military carefully, I'm just being naive uh, or whether whether this is more extreme than than anything you would you would have expected in the, you know, total the, the, the total, I would say, disregard for civilian casualties, except that that actually seems to passive. They, they do seem to be targeting civilians in very active ways, at, at, at least at times. So I'm curious, uh, like, I, in February, when you had said, like, the war you were expecting, is it as brutal on civilians as this one has been? So it, it, it's, it's worse than I thought. Um, you know, so my view from before the war began was that Russia would have more minimal political objectives. So it'd be about changing Ukraine's political orientation, but not, you know, regime change and trying to create, trying to make Ukraine into a vassal state. Because ultimately that's, that's what, you know, that's what Putin tried to do and it failed. Um, I thought it'd be more something along the lines of, you know, getting Ukraine to say they won't join NATO, military caps and things, maybe some things about language laws, some other things, but basically kind of, you know, not quite as, uh, as aggressive and ambitious and unrealistic of goals. So I thought Russia might be able to do that without going to cities because if they went to cities, right, it becomes much more, you know, it becomes much more uh, tough for the Russian military because a lot of their advantages get, um, get, get thrown away. And then also, you, you basically, you can't do much to, to limit damage if you try and take a city and the other side is defending, you know, in, in a tough way. Um, so what was interesting about the beginning of the war is I think that the initial phase, the Russian military did not use as many fires as I thought they would. They didn't, they didn't fire as many missiles. Um, it almost appeared... They didn't want to maximally uh, trip the Ukrainian military, um, and, they, and they wanted to limit some of these things. Because, again, I think, I think they thought they could simply occupy cities. If they moved fast enough, there wouldn't be resistance. They could do that. I, I, th I think that they, they thought that they could do that without you know, really going to the Ukrainian military. So the first 
two days was was more limited than I expected. I thought there'd be a lot more missiles. I thought it'd be much more aggressive news. And then after the first week, you know, this is notable in, in Kharkiv when Russian forces went into Kharkiv on like like February 28th. And it was a small unit that drove into the city and they got they got shot at. I think people in Kharkiv were like were surprised that they did something so kind of foolish, right? And they got they got shot and they got repelled and they lost some of their vehicles. Um, and I think after that, the Russian military kind of started adapting. Said, okay, we we actually right. We, we had, there actually is heavy resistance, and we had to respond in a different way. And we started seeing Kharkiv after that, where you started seeing Russia fire a lot of multiple launch rocket systems into the city, including with cluster munitions. Um, and, you know, clearly these are not precise systems, and, and if you fire into a city, you know, it's, it's not hard to imagine the, the risks of civilians. Um, what was weird about this war, too, is that there wasn't an overall commander you know, initially appointed. There's a unit command problem, which, again, it's not something Russia had made mistakes before. And each kind of military district that was, was running this war kind of fought in a different way. And so you saw a different amount of force being used, and it, it was, again, somewhat surprising. Um, but when we talk about, the, you know, the war crimes, I think, you know, I, I think it comes back to a number of things. I think, one, um, you know, this Russian rhetoric on Ukraine has been dehumanizing for a long time. And it is that, you know, all Ukrainians are Nazis. It's not just Azov. It's, it's, it's you know, society is, 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 has become that way. And that, you know, we're going to be welcomed by people and the people don't want this kind of regime in Ukraine, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that, you know, that was, that was cool. You know, a number of the reports from where Russian soldiers occupied their areas, it's cool that Russian soldiers thought that was true. They thought they were, you know, I think some cases liberating areas. And it was, it, I think it was a, pretty, a, a bit of a shock to them. They found out Ukrainians were not happy to be occupied by them. Um, I think what happened, and, and I think there's probably some, some variants here, but we talk about things in Bucha, some of the other cities in the north. It appeared, at least from some of the reports that I was seeing, that basically the, the the kind of ruthlessness became worse once the campaign started to slow down and it became worse for the Russian military. And I think there's also something notable is that some units were identified as being worse than others. And so that, that you know, that, that strikes me as kind of a, um, it's a it, all war comes are a leadership issue, right? And it's always a problem. But I think it, there was, it was clear that some units were worse about this than others. And I think it's important when we look at this long term is, is to kind of identify, okay, what specifically was leading to this, what units did the worst crimes, why that kind of happened, what led to that. Part of this is just that, you know, just dehumanizing rhetoric used by, by Ukrainians. Part of this, I think, was just um, the lack of discipline in certain units. And, you know, I, I think also just in a lot of cases is probably a sense of lawlessness in, in some of these areas um, that, you know, allowed Russian troops to, to do these kind of crimes. But, you know, I'm a little resonant to go into too much details because it's, there's a lot of reporting on it. And I haven't read all the reporting, and it's important not to kind of get details and facts wrong about this. But it, it, I, I was surprised, you know, we look at Syria, Russia's not, you know, they, they've used force, they've hit hospitals, they've done things of that nature. We know this, right? We, we, we know the way they've kind of demonized what helmets and other groups, um, you know, and, and they obviously have supported the Assad regime while it's used uh, chemical weapons and other systems. So we know this is the case, right? I think there's some question of, in Syria, how much of this is the Assad regime doing these kind of crimes and Russia supporting it? Or how much is the Russian military doing it? And we're seeing right now is, you know, obviously in Ukraine, um, there, there are a number of instances of, of the Russian military doing, you know, things that they should not be. Um, but, you know, I, I do think it's important to note that some places have been worse than others. And it's important to kind of, at the, at the end of this, um, is to kind of look back and say, okay, what, what, you know, what was driving this? Why were certain units this bad? Um, and, and what were the, you know, other kind of factors? To what extent was this systemic across the entire Russian military? To what extent was this kind of, you know, specific units? Those are the kind of things that are important to find out. And I, I, I don't think we have the full picture yet. So I think that's, that part is important to kind of probably wait on before we make uh, too, too many conclusions. Although, of course, you know, we saw what happened in Bucha. We saw what happened in other cities. You know, there, there are atrocities that have been committed, and it is something that, you know, the Russian military needs to address, um, it, but unfortunately it doesn't seem as though that's a, a priority.
Yeah, the, the, uh, that has that line has a bit of an ICRC sound to it to me. You know, we expect the Russian military to address, uh, you know, the Russian military might address it by amping it up, I'm afraid. Um, so I, I want to go to audience questions. So if you have a question, this is a good time to uh, uh, request to speak. Uh, before we do, though, I have one final question myself, which is uh, at this stage, given everything you've seen, uh, what do you expect uh, to happen now? Is this uh, basically boil down to a fight between size and theoretical power and exhaustion? Uh, uh, is it, uh, should we expect it now to be mostly confined as it has been for the last several weeks to the Donbass? What, what's, what's the, having watched the Russian military through this, what do you expect to happen now? And, and who would you say is prevailing? So I, I, I usually try to avoid saying winning or losing because Russia's objectives in Afghanistan were, were to, you know, conduct regime change. They were to change Ukraine's politicization and basically make it a, you know, vassal state of Russia. That failed. And, that, and that, that's, Russia will not achieve that. Like, it, it, it's once the battle for Kiev failed, it was clear that was not going to happen. And so we're talking about reduced objectives for Russia at this point. Um, so, you know, the big question is about sustainability, right? And, and, and a lot of it is more about um, relative losses. So, you know, Russia's obviously had some success in the Donbass recently. They take it, you know, all, I think all of Luhansk at this point. Um, that isn't surprising. Um, when you look at the, where the fighting was happening in that pocket, it, it was tougher for Ukraine to defend there because um, the nature of the, the pocket meant if they wanted to push in longer range air defense systems, the long range artillery, they put that at risk from the flanks for Russian artillery. And so basically the easternmost parts of the pocket were always going to be in a position. They didn't have as much air defense coverage or, or, or as effective artillery coverage as, as other parts of the, the, the front line. And that was always going to be a problem for Ukraine. And, you know, if they, if they pushed in more uh, long range or important kind of air defense systems, artillery systems, they, they put those at risk. And of course, that was always a good thing they had to, to, to manage. So it's not, it's not surprising Russia has made successes there. Um, you know, it, the big question is, 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 is who's taking heavier losses right now? And, and a lot of these relative losses, not so much about terrain. There are important pieces of terrain, but, you know, Severodonetsk, that isn't, you know, Russia taking it is, is important for Russia. It's symbolically important. It doesn't strategically affect Ukraine that much. Um, the, the bigger strategic issue is that um, the Ukrainian military and its ability to keep fighting. And so, you know, the, 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 the important thing for Ukraine is that they, they, didn't, uh, they didn't have a large force encircled. So they didn't, they didn't have huge loss in that respect. Although they clearly were taking casualties during a lot of this fighting, and it's not clear to me which side was taking worse casualties. If Russia was taking worse casualties, then, then it's not necessarily you know, a shitty you know, defeat or anything along those lines for Ukraine. Um, looking forward, it, it's hard to tell because this is not necessarily a, a war that's going to go on for a month or two, but it might be you know, in 2023. It, it, the, the time horizon is, is, is quite long. Um, neither political leader has, is showing any sign of, of wanting to kind of compromise, and I think politically that you know, makes sense for both of them. So it means that basically the conflict's going to be ended based on the military situation. And as long as both sides think they can have success, they're probably going to continue the war. Um, and it comes down to, as I said before, but kind of sustainability. The economic side, it's hard to tell. It's not my, really, my, my focus. Um, you know, I think Russia probably has an advantage economically sustaining this war. Um, in terms of other support, you know, Ukraine is now getting some of these long-range mobile launch rocket systems from the U.S. elsewhere, the HIMARS, other M270s. Those have already shown to be, be quite effective for Ukraine. Um, if they get more of them, that will make it more difficult for Russia to keep fighting the war, um, or at least conducting offensives. It won't necessarily mean that Ukraine 
conduct uh, uh, counterattacks themselves, though. And the big thing to keep in mind is that increasingly this war is fought by volunteers, reservists, um, not permanent readiness units. And so these aren't cohesive units anymore. We saw back in February. And basically, you can train guys to sit in the trench and defend the trench. And it doesn't take that much training. But it takes a lot more training to do offensive operations effectively. And, and the issue is that both sides um, are, you know, a lot of the fighting is being done by non-professional forces. And that means it's going to be much more difficult to do really um, capable offensive operations on either side. So the you know, most likely situation is we'll see the front lines move a little bit. Nothing probably that dramatic anytime soon. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, it comes down to sustainability. And so you know, one of the big questions is that in terms of these kind of volunteer units, Russia is, you know, they, they appear to be successfully having this kind of covert, not really covert, but this kind of um, this limited kind of mobilization where they're offering short contracts to, to, to Russian men in different cities. You know, three-month contracts, the pay is pretty good. You know, in many cases, it's four or five times the average pay in many Russian cities. It's, it's obviously quite desirable. And because, you know, a lot of parts of Russia are not, you know, under fire, they can train these units uh, um, more effectively. And they probably have better equipment to, to equip some of these units. So in that regard, I think Russia has somewhat of an advantage in terms of uh, training and equipping some of these volunteer units. So one of the big questions is going to be for, for, for NATO is that NATO wants to keep helping Ukraine fight this war. It's not enough to just keep training them on uh, their weapon systems. It also means, you know, potentially bringing Ukrainian companies or battalions and training them through, um, you know, uh, uh, bases in NATO countries to, so they can develop kind of cohesion, discipline, figure out how to operate together. Because right now, you know, there are a lot of anecdotes on both sides of, of not very well-trained units being thrown in the front and not performing very well, which isn't surprising. And so that's one of the, I think, the, the key focuses for, for NATO going forward. And I know the UK was talking about this before. Um, not, not sure what, what will happen with them right now politically, but um, that's going to be an important point of focus. But in terms of, you know, where, where's the war going to go? You know, the honest answer is I don't know. It's really hard to kind of fix factor all this in. Ukraine needs the continued NATO support, both economically and militarily. Uh, if that breaks at some point, like that could be a significant issue. I think Russia probably uh, assumes that they, they that at some point NATO support will wane and they have an advantage there and just kind of uh, kind of grinding this war out. Um, but you know, again, it comes down to I, I don't think we're going to see massive changes in the front lines. I, I don't think either side is, is ready to collapse at any point soon. So we're probably going to see more of this war continue as it is. And again, you know, at least according to Russia's stated objectives, they want to take uh, the rest of Donetsk. I don't know if they'll be able to do that. I think that the, the Slavyansk, Kramatorsk line, as long as Ukraine has kind of fortified those areas, they should be able to defend that more easily than in the, the, the pocket they were fighting in, 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 in uh, Severodonetsk. Um, but again, you know, a lot of this comes down to which side has more forces, which side has more reserves, which side has more train reserves. And, and ultimately, I don't know. And I think I'm not sure if, if many people outside have you know, that, that kind of information since we know both sides have, had, have sustained really heavy casualties and they're still fighting this war. Aaron Miller uh, of Carnegie Institute and a great American diplomat. The floor is yours. But you got to unmute yourself. All right. Can you hear me now? Indeed. Excellent. Ben, thanks for doing this. And Rob, a ton of information. I've been on the call now for 30 minutes or more. Maybe not that long, learned a ton. I, I have a question for you. Um, one of your colleagues, I'm sure you know, a fellow Marine, Andrew Milborn, just penned a piece uh, for the Modern War Institute at West Point. Title of the piece is Time is Not on Kiev's Side, Training Weapons and Attrition in Ukraine. He concludes with one sentence. Um, Ukraine needs weapon systems that will give it a real edge over its adversary and help staunch the flow of casualties. 
Without this edge, no amount of determination and courage will be enough to avoid a prolonged war of attrition, and such a contest will favor the side with the greatest numbers. For Ukraine, the darkest days may yet, may yet, may be yet to come. And it's drawing from Tolstoy's notion that patience and time are the are the greatest warriors. My question to you is, and you can't speak for the Biden administration, is if Ukraine is indeed the fulcrum of Western civilization, and in fact the stakes are incredibly high, 1939 Munich-like stakes, this time potentially with nuclear weapons. Why isn't the Biden administration willing and or able to provide in a more timely and in quantities that will be necessary, seems to me, given Melbourne's view that Russia has advantage, even though Ukraine's the second largest country in Europe. What is the reluctance of the administration to provide sophisticated weaponry uh, in quantity and uh, in time that could continue to give Ukraine this edge? Is it fear of conflict with Russia? Is it fear of American military equipment, uh, see Afghanistan and or Syria and Iraq falling into Russian hands? Where's the risk aversion coming from? So, um, it, so obviously can't speak for, for the administration. Um, you know, I think back in April when Russia pulled back from, from Kiev and Chernihiv and elsewhere and, and they started pulling back in Kharkiv, um, it became kind of a popular notion that maybe Ukraine can actually push Russian forces back. Right? Maybe maybe the balance has, has shifted that much. And, you know, I think there was concern because Ukraine was still pushing for, for you know, longer weapons. I think there was concern from some that if we provide them, right, what if Ukraine um, not just sort of take back the Donbass, but, you know, start trying to take back Crimea. And I'm not sure, you know, obviously Crimea is Ukrainian territory, but Russia considers it differently than it considers elsewhere in Ukraine. Not sure what the, you know, NATO position is on that. Um, I think I think m- most NATO leaders have tried to kind of not specifically talk about that. Um, you know, w- the high Mars delivery is, 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 is indicative of this. So it, it would have been much more effective and important if the U.S. had delivered those earlier. Um, and, and I think it likely would have had a, uh, a role and would have been effective at slowing down Russia's advance. Um, but, you know, we, we've seen them, I think we've been there for about two weeks now, and almost every night they're having a role. Right? They're hitting ammo depots, they're hitting um, command and control points, they are disrupting uh, the Russian military's operation. And, 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 and it appears Ukrainians are using them quite effectively and judiciously, not, you know, firing off too many rocks at one time, but, you know, picking targets kind of in a smart way. Um, I think the escalation risks are a concern, and, and look, they, you know, they should be, right? They're, they're Russia's view of this war and Putin's view is that this is, you know, obviously a kind of existential conflict. Um, I, I know that just from talking to people in Russia, the discussion of using nuclear weapons is being discussed more in, in, in Moscow than, you know, any time prior. Right. And, and you know, the, I think the, the, the discussions of, of what things are permissible um, being discussed in Moscow has changed than what it was before. Um, and so I think that's a you know, significant concern. I, d- I don't think it's wrong for the Biden administration to be concerned about that with the HIMARS. Obviously, the, the Biden administration provided um, the Islamic range Gimler's uh, missile, but not the, the 300 kilometer range attackums. And, you know, specifically kind of mentioned that's not that we're doing this so they, they can't do strikes in Russia, even though, you know, um, it doesn't appear Ukraine has used any kind of recent NATO delivery weapons to use those uh, on cross border raids. Maybe TV2s from Turkey, but nothing from the U.S. So it appears, you know, that, that there is that agreement that Ukraine won't use them that way. And it certainly appears that they're, they're upholding that side. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not sure what the, the desired instead is, you know, for NATO here. Obviously, we're talking about why it's, uh, Ukraine is important, why the, the war ending on uh, terms favorable for Ukraine is, is important. 
But there is a concern, I think, from a, a number of NATO num- uh, members about, you know, what if Ukraine has too much success? What does that mean in terms of escalation risks? Um, and, and what is the desired end state? I'm not sure there is a clear desired end state that NATO militaries are providing or the NATO countries are providing and then directing their arms deliveries to, to achieve that objective. Right. It seems, though, that kind of overall objective is you, we want Ukraine to be able to retake all its territory. But the arms deliveries are not necessarily indicative of that kind of goal. And it shows that there is kind of more concerns. Um, you know, one other issue is that in terms of Ukraine retaking territory, it's not just new weapon systems. Right. And, and so as soon as before, the, 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 the delivery high Mars and Ukraine is getting more high Mars and they're, they're getting um, M270s. Those will, you know, as long as they're getting enough rockets and missiles for them, th- those will play a role. They'll be effective. But the role they're going to play is it's going to make it more difficult for Russia to do offensive operations. It won't necessarily mean that Ukraine will be able to retake territory quickly. And that's because to do so, Ukraine has to have, you know, competent military units that are, that are capable of doing offensive operations and not just, you know, like squads or platoons, but like battalions or higher. And the problem is that because of attrition, I'm not sure Ukraine has that many units that are that well constituted anymore and that can, can, can conduct those kind of operations effectively. And so that, that part is going to be difficult. And so, you know, in terms of other arms deliveries, I, I know there's a, a bunch of other things we mentioned. <clears throat> One of the issues is that um, there's a lot of uh, useful and effective equipment that, that Ukraine is receiving in terms of howitzers. So they're receiving German howitzers, French howitzers, obviously American ones. Part of the issue is that even though they use the same ammunition mostly, the, all the spare parts are different. The maintenance is different. And so that creates this entire um, uh, maintenance problem for the Ukrainian military. And so it's, it's, you know, it's, not a, it's not a question of whether or not Ukrainians can, can learn to operate the systems and use them, uh, employ them effectively. It's a question of can they maintain them and keep them running for months and months at a time. And, and that, that, I think that part is an issue here, and that, that spare parts, logistics, other things becoming a bigger problem. And so that kind of, I think, also relates to what weapons are getting and, you know, and what makes sense. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't speak for the Biden administration. I think those are the concerns that they're, they're demonstrating. But, you know, overall, I think when we talk about I think the, the priority is for, for NATO, at least, is how can NATO help Ukraine sustain this war to defend itself? Right. As long as Ukraine, you know, Ukraine should be able to determine its own objectives and how does NATO support that if supported to do so. And that's really the, the kind of focus so far. And I think part of that is arms servers, part of that is going to be training and part of that is economic support. All right, Walter Leck, the floor is yours. Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you, Rob. Uh, great analysis. Um, having said that, um, considering that at this point it's clear, clear as the day what Russians uh, or Russian objectives in Ukraine are, it's essentially elimination of Ukraine and uh, genocide of Ukrainian nation. Uh, have that also implying that concessions are not on the table for Ukrainians. Ukrainians are seeing what happens on occupied Russian-occupied Ukrainian territories. It's not just Bucha or Borodyanka or Irpin. It's where in Ukraine, the Russians managed to take a foothold. The atrocities, the war crimes, the genocides, the deportations, it all continues. Again, it's an existential fight for Ukraine. Having said all of that and implying that Western support continues and gradually increases, specifically with specialized weapons and long-ranged uh, rocket artillery like HIMARS or M270, and potentially attack MS systems and rockets. Where do you see or when do you see the tide actually shifting the other way, specifically considering the fact that HIMARS already kind of eliminate substantial amounts of ammunition depots that Russians have been stockpiling for eight years in Russian-occupied Donbass? Eventually, the tide probably will turn the other side, despite that Russians are digging in in occupied territories. The question is when, uh, because the talk in Ukraine is 
for whatever reason about August or September. So how do you see this progressing and when this creeping Russian advance will grind to halt? How, how large are Russian resources to, to basically to continue themselves in current pace? Thank you. So those are good questions. And I don't have a, I don't have a good high confidence answer. Um, you know, on one hand, a big part of the ammunition, right? We're talking about artillery ammunition. There's been a big concern the last you know, month or two about Ukraine not having enough artillery ammunition and being you know, outgunned by Russia and the Donbass where they can just use so much more ammunition. Um, and I'm not sure if anyone has a good idea of how, how much Russian artillery ammunition they can keep using. Right, there, there's already been um, comments from, from Russian observers that they're running low on, I think, I think 122 millimeter howitzer rounds and they have to use 152. Um, also question about, you know, can, can they ramp up production of those artillery rounds? I'm not sure. And, and, and again, you know, the benefit Ukraine has, they're receiving the support from other countries that are not fighting Russia. You know, how much in the way of ammunition supplies do they have? I don't know. And I think that's, you know, that, that is a hard hard question to answer. It is a significant um, um, issue when we try to talk about when when might there be a tipping point where, where you, the military advantage shifts back to Ukraine? Well, that might be part of it, right? When, when Russia can't use um, artillery just saturate areas and they have to be kind of more judicious about it, like Ukraine was in, in, in May, that, you know, that could be a significant effect. I, I don't know when that is, though. And so that, that's an open question. And what I will say is that, you know, Russia has demonstrated they have a lot of missiles. They have more missiles than I thought they had in this war. Um, and they have a lot of artillery. They have a lot of rounds for it. And they, and they have a lot of the reserves in that regard. So that is an open question, and I don't have a good answer for it. Um, in terms of, you know, <clears throat> where about when the tide might turn, you know, Ukrainian efforts at, at kind of conducting insurgency behind in, in, in occupied territories, certainly that seems to be ramping up over the last month or so. Um, I'm not sure if that was if there's really a good you know plan for that before, but clearly we're seeing some of that in, in Kherson and in Melitopol and elsewhere. Um, you know, to what extent will that make Russian you know occupation more difficult for them? I don't know, but that you know that, that's a significant factor looking forward is is how successful it could be. I do think you know if if the front lines become somewhat stagnant as a result of both sides just being somewhat equally matched, that might be the, you know the, the really kind of focus for for Ukraine and Ukraine soft is to focus on doing those kind of operations and make it more difficult for Russia to sustain it. Um, you know, the delivery high Mars, they've only been there for, I think, like two weeks or so. They're, they're having an effect. The question is, how, how much is the lag between strikes on Russian ammo depots and then an actual, um, you know, tangible seeing a slowdown in, in a Russian advance, right? Maybe we're already seeing that, right? Maybe it'll be a week from now. I don't know. Um, it certainly puts, um, uh, by, by threatening Russian ammo depots, it, it puts you know, that, that, that huge advantage of theirs at risk. Can't, you know, necessarily fire as many artillery rounds every day. Um, and again, you know, one thing that Ukraine has been, been smart about the entire time, they've realized logistics has been a, a weak point for Russia, and they specifically targeted fuel convoys, you know, other, other, or, or logistics or ammunition depots to try and um, hinder Russia's advance. So they've been smart about that. I do think that, you know, the more high Mars they get, that would be significant. Part of it becomes a question of, of how many rocks they have, right? And because the more they have, the more targets they can strike. But if, if they have fewer, they have to kind of conserve it more and only focus on really high end targets. So that's part of it. That's one of the considerations. Um, you know, the, the other big one is this in general on the Ukraine side, I think there's less um, probably understanding, at least from my view, of, of their, their capabilities right now. Right? We know Ukraine's taking heavy casualties. You know, to what extent are they holding back some units and not committing to the Donbass fight so they can throw them into Kherson, you know, once they have enough, you know, MRS systems? Maybe they're doing that. I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell. Um, so that's, that's, you know, the big question to me is just what, what does Ukraine have in the way of reserves? What do they have in the way of permanent readiness units that are still capable, that are not being thrown into to the fight right now? And then can they be, uh, uh, you know, is Ukraine waiting until they get, you know, the, this, um, they can kind of equalize 
the the uh, fires advantage that Russia has right now. That once they get more multiple drug systems, then they will start trying to do actual offensive operations at a greater scale in in Kherson and Zaporizhia or wherever else. Basically, I don't know. So, right. so we've we've got uh, just a couple minutes left, and we've got a bunch of questions in the queue. So if you're one of those questioners, please keep your question brief, and I'm going to ask Rob uh, to keep answers brief as well. Tasso, the floor is yours. Hey, Rob. Uh, I was just wondering, what do you, what would you think would be the Well, we seem to have lost Tasso. Uh, so uh, let's go to Kia. The floor is yours. Thank you. Um, so my question is, you know, what does it take for Ukraine to take back, you know, the Donbass region? You mentioned training battalions, um, you know, HIMARS, but would pouring more HIMARS into it help? Do they need air superiority? Do they need, uh, you know, fighter jets, more UAVs? What does it take to take back the territory? So I think it's going to be tough to take back um, a lot of those areas because, you know, Russia has an advantage in, in, in aviation, in artillery, and other things. Um, I, I think the big, when we look forward, the big question is about manpower, right? Russia right now is having success, you know, recruiting enough volunteers to fight this war, enough, enough to kind of conduct, you know, offensive operations, even if they're slow and somewhat costly. Um, the, the extent to which Russia can keep doing that is really important. If, if Russia runs into trouble with manpower and has to become a question of do they have to do a general mobilization, then that becomes an issue. But if they can keep kind of these, um, if they can keep recruiting enough guys to fight, I think it's going to be tough for Ukraine to retake a lot of territory. I think Kherson is somewhere where Ukraine could have success, right? They might be able to, to push Russian forces back to, to, to the Dnieper. Um, but I think other areas in the Donbass, it, it will be more difficult, um, on, you know, barring basically uh, Russia running into really significant manpower issues or, you know, running very low on artillery and just not having enough in, in reserve. So, um, I, you know, even if Ukraine gets, you know, new fighters or the aircraft or, or other kind of systems, I don't suspect we're going to see Ukraine be able to retake those territories quickly. It'll probably be more a reflection of Russia struggling to kind of sustain this war. And so I think in some ways, you know, that's the kind of way to look at it is that we're not going to see probably a, a rapid, you know, Ukrainian counterattack somewhere in, in the near future. But over time, if this war is, you know, more unsustainable for Russia militarily, then Ukraine could have, could have some, some gains in that regard. But, you know, I, I think that's going to take some time. Ethan, you get the penultimate question today. Um, thank you. Uh, especially after restricting of uh, Russian state news in many countries, who do you think is winning the <clears throat> information war surrounding this war and what impact does this have? So it's, it's kind of hard to tell, right? Because, I mean, I see stuff in America. I don't see as much in other countries. So I'm not sure, you know, how, how successful it's being. Um, what I can tell you is that you know, in the U.S., where everything is extremely partisan, um, support for Ukraine is, is remarkably united. Right. Maybe there's, there's some disagreement over the extent of support, but it does seem as though Americans are quite united that, you know, Ukraine is on the right side here. You Russia is not. And, and, and that's, you know, something remarkable in this very partisan time for the U.S. Um, one thing that's noted about this war is that because it was so secret, the, the Russian military and Russian government did not set up really um, effective kind of I.O. campaign for this. And, and you know, like the Russian military, it didn't set up a a telegram channel for the Russian Modi until like March 5th, right? Because they just weren't prepared for this kind of thing. They didn't know they had to do it. Um, you know, overall, I, I think Russia has, is having some success on the information side, but, you know, it, it's, it's kind of hard to tell across the world how much that's for or not. Um, and, you know, I, I think ultimately uh, the the stuff we saw in Butch and elsewhere, you know, obviously that pointed in a different direction. It, it did not help Russia out. And, you know, they can, they can kind of 
you know, try and push back against it as much as they want to, but there's, you know, enough international media to, to see what happens um, that, you know, it, that, that part is pretty clear. And again, you know, every day, you know, we, we continue to see Russian missile strikes in, in Ukrainian cities. Um, you know, I, in a lot of these cases, I don't think Russia is, is uh, you know, particularly trying to target civilian, like, you know, buildings, but they're firing a lot of old missiles and ship missiles that are not very accurate. And, if you, and in a lot of cases, they're missing these, these military targets and they're hitting, you know, residential buildings in Kiev and elsewhere. You know, that's a, that's a consistent thing we see in the news, you know, every week is, is one of these strikes, whether it's on the mall in Kamenchuk or, or, or the residential buildings in Kiev. You know, and, and obviously that hurts Russia's I.O. side just because, you know, there's no there's no justification for that. Namir, you get the last question today. I really appreciate this. Um, just a little bit of background. I'm bringing international relations background with this master's with some strategic studies built into there. And my question really revolves around Schwerpunkt um, and the notion of what a victory or defeat is. Because the, the push towards Kiev, I didn't think it was an unreasonable plan. It was I always viewed it as Russia trying to innovate, do what they did during the Second Gulf War, you know, that mad uh, the dash towards Baghdad. And that if they took the capital and took out the leading government, then the country would fall. In itself isn't necessarily an unreasonable idea. Ukrainians never went on the offensive, per se, but they localized their defense to the extent that Schwerpunkt was never achieved, which could be military or political. So what does it mean for the Ukrainians to achieve a Schwerpunkt against an authoritarian regime like Putin, um, where he's immune to the notion of casualties, but is hemmed in by the, by the impact of a larger war on the Russian population? Um, I don't know if that question made sense. It makes sense in my head, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Sure. So, you know, one thing I did, um, um, this war, I think some people have said it, it was predetermined the way it would go. I think this war could have gone much worse for Ukraine if Russia had adopted a, a, a more competent strategy. And, and the move to Kyiv, um, if they had a lot of more resources for it, right? You know, I don't, I don't think taking Kyiv would have been, would have been something easy they could have done. Um, but they could have you know, there were negotiations happening in March. Ukraine was negotiating, and they were talking about certain kind of concessions. Um, you know, not not like you know Ukraine, Ukraine to a vessel state, but talking about well, okay, we won't join NATO or, or maybe some other things. Um, you know, if Russia had been more competent, I think that you know there there was a chance that Russia could have come away with with some you know, lesser kind of political goals of cheese. In terms of Ukraine, you know, in terms of the military, I think it's more about preventing Russia from achieving its goals. Right. And, and, and overall, um, you know, Russia is not going to make Ukraine into a vassal state. They're not going to do regime change. They're not going to do those other things. They don't have the capability to do that. And so every day, you know, Ukraine resists that. They're, they're in, in some way, they're, they're achieving their goal. Right. That Ukraine is, you know, a united country. The, I think Ukrainian identity, I'm, I'm not an expert in Ukraine, but, but I think it's pretty clear that Ukrainian identity is, is a very strong a, a concept now. Right. And it's something that, that unites Ukrainians maybe more so than, than ever before. Um, and, and of course, that was the opposite of what Russia, Russia was trying to achieve. It was to destroy Ukraine identity. So the longer this goes on, you know, I think Ukraine will keep fighting. I think Ukraine's, you know, as as uh, Putin said, you know, they saw what happened in Butch elsewhere. A lot of Ukrainians, you know, they 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 don't want to risk that, and so they're going to keep fighting. And and so I don't know if they can inflict a you know real military defeat on Russia um, in terms of you know pushing Russia forces back. But the longer they they can fight, if they can make it unsustainable for Russia, that's where they they have you know they, they have a better kind of uh, more realistic objective. And and as they get more of these kind of long range multiple launch rocket systems that can hit targets at tactical and uh, operational depths, right? You know, in terms of ammo depots, logistics, command and control, that can really make it more difficult for Russia to to sustain this campaign. And one thing to keep in mind too is that you know as long as this war goes on, Russia's military is really in a, in a bad position to respond to other crises. 
right? They obviously still have forces in Syria, but you know the intervention they did in Kazakhstan in January, you know they don't they don't have those forces available anymore, right? And the, and the actual forces from the VDV that were deployed, they took really heavy casualties and 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 host them all on on the first week. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing some other, you know, we're seeing some recent protests in Uzbekistan elsewhere. And, you know, the Russian military, you know, 85, 90 percent of the their permanent readiness units are in Ukraine right now. They're, they're pulling units from everywhere else. They're not well positioned to respond to these other crises. And so as long as the war goes on, you know, Russia is in somewhat of a vulnerable state if some kind of crisis occurs that they'd want to have military force to use and they don't have it. So that's something to keep in mind as well. And that's why, you know, in the beginning of the war, I thought Russia was going to try and do something, you know, short and fast. Because I thought there were going to be these long issues if they keep this kind of sustained, you know, campaign. There are some issues with that um, strategically, but you know, the, the, obviously at this point, Ukraine is is the focus for Russia. It's going to be the focus, you know, for 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 foreseeable future. And I think you know, priority for Ukraine is not so much you know trying to inflict a defeat on Russia. It is to prevent Russia from achieving its goals and to make it as costly as possible in doing so. And you know, Ukrainians are doing a good job of that. And I think you know, the, the new deliveries of uh, precision guided missions from the U.S. and NATO um, will help them do so. We are going to leave it there. Rob Lee, uh, it's uh, great to meet you. And uh, this has been incredibly informative. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We will be back. As always, you can find uh, the next episode of Live from Ukraine pinned to the top of my Twitter feed. Uh, Whenever I schedule it, it'll be there. If you don't see one there, it's because nothing's scheduled. You can find all the past episodes of Live from Ukraine on the YouTube, uh, uh, not the YouTube, on the uh, podcast feed, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Please do uh, share it, rate it, and uh, talk about it incessantly at dinner parties, because that's the way we do promotion. Uh, We will be back next time. Thank you. Live from Ukraine is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Uh, You know, the engineering, I'm doing it myself because it's Twitter spaces, but it is produced and edited by folks at Goat Rodeo. Thanks for listening.